0: At verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead, then the disciples went back to their homes. Let us ask for God's blessing upon his word. Our Father, we thank You for the hope in these words, for the truth in these words, for the joy in these words, and pray that we would receive uh, these words in that way and not in any other way where there would be faithlessness, despair, anxiety. But, O Lord, let there be rejoicing for the empty tomb. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. I don't know how many of you were reading uh, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity in preparation for the sermon on the empty tomb uh, last night. Uh, Did uh, did anybody, by the way? Just never know. Uh, Good, because that really wouldn't be the book you should be reading to prepare for this. That was a very formative book for me as a young man, actually, and I still remember uh, some of the vivid ways in which he explains aspects of the Christian faith, the, the small problem, in one sense, a very large problem, however, is that if you were to prepare for a sermon on the resurrection by reading C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, you would, wouldn't find much at all on the resurrection. And so what is an otherwise outstanding book, in many respects, uh, if C.S. Lewis were to come back and we could get a revised and updated edition. Mere Christianity, the very basic Christianity that uh, John Stott so eloquently wrote about in the 20th century, must necessarily focus on the resurrection, or you do not have mere Christianity. Uh, You probably would not be surprised to find in this room right now, many differences of opinions on all sorts of matters, even theological. And if you were to go outside of this room to the church in Surrey, and then were to extrapolate to the churches in our presbytery, in our denomination, and then extrapolate to all of the churches in the world at this point in time, and then extrapolate to all the Christians who've ever existed, and you were to pile up all of their differences on top of one another, the Tower of Babel would look like a little boy's Lego house. And there would be difference upon difference upon difference upon difference. And uh, we don't celebrate that. We acknowledge it. But if you were to take every faithful Christian from the time of Christ and on the one hand put their differences and build them up, you would also be able to take the central fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ here, and that, in a certain sense, makes mincemeat out of these differences. Because the resurrection is what we believe in. It is what unites us. It's what gives us all the same hope. It's what gives us uh, the reason for our existence in this world and why we can be confident and hopeful and full of joy And so, notwithstanding the differences Christians have, the one central fact that binds us all together is the resurrection of Christ. And we should never understate that. It's not understated in God's Word. In fact, if you were to, let's say, go to Mark chapter 8, verse 31, you could do that right now even, and then go to Mark chapter 9, verse 31, which you could do right now even. And if you were to go to Mark chapter 10, verse 34, which you could do right now even, you would find that our Lord was exceedingly clear about the matter of His persecution by the chief priests, of His flogging or His being uh, persecuted with words, but also in his body, that he would die and you, you can see that right and he began to teach them that the Son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed he said, and be killed and after three days, rise again mark eight thirty one in case you don't believe me, 9.31. He was teaching His disciples. Again, the same disciples. He's teaching them. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill Him. And when He is killed, after three days, what? He will rise. Mark 10.34. And they will mock Him and spit on Him and flog Him and kill Him. And after three days, days he will rise. It seems so clear, doesn't it, to us right now, reading that. It seems so clear, you know, you, you wonder how is it, how is it that when it was the first day of the week, Sunday morning early, the disciples aren't sort of all around the tomb and they've invited other disciples and the ladies are there and they've, they've got their Bibles open, so to speak, the scroll, maybe Psalm 16, or they've been uh, reading other places that talk about the resurrection and vindication of the Lord and they're thinking, you know, any minute now I think He's coming out. Uh, and people say, well, what, what's this all about? Well, you see, He had taught us many things and actually everything He said before He died would happen, did happen. Peter could even say, yeah, you know, he even said I would deny him three times before the rooster crows and that happened. So I have no reason to doubt the one who rose Lazarus, the one who fed the 5,000, the one who walked on water, the one who did this, that, and the other. I have no doubt that if he said he would be handed over by the chief priest, which he was, That he would be flogged, which he was, that he would be killed, which he was, is the same person I can trust who said, On the third day he will rise again from the dead. So we're all here. But they weren't. And Jesus had said many other things in John chapter 2, verses 19 to 21. He talks about the temple and destroy this temple. And in three days, I will rise it up. And they realize after that he was talking about his body. And the interesting thing about Christ saying that is that when he goes around forgiving people for their sins, the reason he can do that is because he is the temple. And so, uh, first century Israelites, if they wanted their sins forgiven, didn't just say, oh, I want my sins forgiven. They would go to the temple. There would be a sacrificial system. Sins would be forgiven. When Jesus says your sins are forgiven, he's saying, I'm the temple. You come to me. Your sins are forgiven. And if you destroy this temple, I will raise it up again. A few chapters later, you get to John chapter 5, and you can read from verse 24 to 29, but it's all about how the Son possesses life in Himself, that He receives this life in Himself and that an hour is coming and is indeed is now here where the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He's, he's speaking about resurrection. In John chapter 6, verse 39 and 40, he speaks again about resurrection. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. Whoever drinks my blood and eats my flesh has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. And then all of a sudden John chapter 11 happens with Lazarus. And this is most interesting because the reality spoken of in chapter 5 and 6 about people being raised from the dead comes to concrete viewing in the person of Lazarus which acts as a signpost to chapter 20. And we read there, amidst all of the chaos that's taking place, Jesus saying, with absolute regal authority, I am the resurrection. Not, I will usher in a resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. And because of that fact, Lazarus can walk out of the tomb at the mere command of Christ Himself. A bit more hints are offered in John chapter 16. For example, he'll say, uh, you will see me for a little while, then you will not see me, but then you will see me again. And he was talking about his death and resurrection. And they start to understand this well after the fact. But the point that I'm trying to make is that this wasn't something that Christ hid. In fact, this was something that Christ constantly preached on, and there are signposts that lead to chapter 20 as being the intended destination of everything that Christ had said and preached during his ministry. And you know how important this was to the apostles? It was so important that really nothing else in their preaching after this fact is said unless it's connected to the resurrection. Do you know why liberal churches die? Where the pastor doesn't really believe in the resurrection. I went to university. Plenty of theologians, alleged theologians. And they said, well, we don't really believe in the resurrection. But we do like the story of it. It gives us, it's, you know, it's a story of hope. And it's the story of, of this. But we don't really believe in a bodily resurrection. And so you have these churches where they start to die And it's because they're liberal churches and they don't really believe in the resurrection, so the resurrection isn't preached. And, you know, people are either really stupid, really smart, or some combination of the two. We, I would like to say, are some combination of the two. And it doesn't take people long to figure out that when resurrection isn't preached from the pulpit, what's the point in being there? You are wasting your time. If I don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, I'm the first one through those doors. But if Christ has been raised, you have every reason to be here. Get rid of the resurrection. You get rid of the fundamental tenet of the Christian faith. So, look at the apostles in Acts. You could just read Acts. And you get to chapter 2, Peter's sermon. It begins with resurrection. God raised Him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. A few verses later, this Jesus God raised up. He's already just said it. But He says it again. And of that we are all witnesses. Chapter 3, And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Chapter 4, let it be known to all of you, all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. Chapter 5, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. And many other instances in Acts. Chapter 10, for example. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, which He did. Verse 34 of chapter 13. And as for the fact that He raised him from the dead, no more to see corruption or to return to corruption, He has spoken this way. I will give you the sure blessings of David. Chapter 13, verse 37. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption, quoting Psalm 16 that we read earlier. The point is that Peter's preaching and people are listening and people are coming to believe as they are cut to the heart and the only reason they would ever be cut to the heart and then want to believe is if Christ has in fact been raised from the dead. So the reason I bring this up is because Jesus had spoken a lot about it. The apostles speak a lot about it. And so somewhere between chapter 19 and 20, Christ actually marched out of that tomb. But the details you'll see now in the next 10 verses are quite extraordinary for one simple reason. Apart from the fact that He's been raised from the dead. Let me say that again. The details are quite extraordinary for one simple reason. Because they are so ordinary in a certain sense. If you're a movie producer, I don't think this is how you're going to have the resurrection. Can you imagine Hollywood? There'd be fireworks, the stone. People all around, fireworks start going off. Smoke starts coming out. And some guy comes out. And it's, wow, this is amazing. But it's actually almost underwhelming in a certain sense. And what you're dealing with is eyewitness accounts of people who are telling the truth. And everything about this sounds like people who are simply just recounting details that are true. How do we know this? Well, on the first day of the week, a new phrase that enters into the language of the church rather than the third day, he would be raised from dead. The, on the first day of the week, Sunday, the Lord's Day, as John calls it in the book of Revelation, Mary Magdalene, the lady who had... One time had seven demons. This is Mary of Magdala. And that's how you were known back in the day. You, you are, uh, there's a, a famous theologian called Thomas Aquinas. And uh, I used to think Aquinas was his second name. And so people would call him Aquinas. Uh, as Aquinas said, well that's not technically correct. It was Saint Thomas who lived in Aquinas in Italy. And so that's what happens. You are called uh, your first name and then your second name is where you're from. Mark Cloverdale is my new name. Uh, doesn't quite have a nice ring to it, does it? Mark Westphan. I like that one. Mark Westphan. Except for the people, of course. But I've, I've already been there and said that. So here we have Mary of Magdala. A woman who loved the Lord Jesus Christ a great deal, who had been redeemed by Him, who had received His love, and perhaps was the Mary who poured out the ointment on His feet and showed such astounding love to our Lord. She is the first person that is mentioned by John as going to the empty tomb. Now let me assure you, in the first century, if you're trying to establish a truthful story, you do not say, the first person to see the empty tomb was a woman. That's just because of how society functioned back then. That's not what you would say, unless it's true. So she comes to the tomb while it's still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, that's not very good news. Why? Because back in this period of time, there were uh, nefarious individuals who were grave robbers, and it became such a problem that about ten or so years after the death of Christ, you actually could receive capital punishment for stealing from graves. And why would you steal from graves? Because in graves where people were entombed, because of the Jewish method of burial, they would have expensive linen cloths and expensive spices which would be stolen. So somebody, in Mary's mind at this point in time, has come and stolen the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, taken the expensive linen and the fragrances, and made off with Him. So what does she do? She runs to Simon Peter and the other disciple, whom we know to be John, the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken, the robbers have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where He have laid Him. I mean, this poor lady, she saw Christ die on the cross. She saw him mocked and ridiculed. She saw what a horrible death he underwent. She heard the cries and the screams, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And now to add insult to injury, he can't even rest in peace. He's been stolen. You know when things go badly for you? And you do like spiritual math in your head? Well, a number of bad things have gone on. I'm sure there's going to be a turning point now. Nothing more bad can happen. Because God only allows a few bad things to happen, and then He kind of makes it to, you know, get better. And then she sees, my Lord's body has been stolen after all of this. So she, no doubt, was an emotional wreck. What do Peter and John do? Well, Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb, obviously to investigate what is going on. Both of them were running together. Now, I have to say, verse 4 is one of my favorite verses in the Scripture because it sounds like if I was writing, I would actually put this in if I were John. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I mean, come on, John. Is that really important detail? Well, I think it is. Unless I lost, in which I would conveniently leave that detail out. And I, I, he, he does actually bring this up again, and so I, I would like to talk to John about this point. John being younger than Peter, you know, the commentators say, John being younger than Peter is why he got there. Well, I don't know about if that's really the answer. I mean, I've lost to some old men in my time, and uh, it's, it's not nice not nice at all. So the point is that John gets there first, Peter gets there second, but then you see something of Peter's character. So you see something of John's amazing fitness evidently, but then you see Peter's character. Because John stoops to look in. It's probably still quite dark and he sees the linen cloths lying there. Now this should this should alert you to there's a there's something very odd happening. You don't rob a tomb, and then leave what you came. You don't. It's not the body they want. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> I don't know what value dead bodies have in the ancient world. But the linen, that was of some value. And yet he sees the linen cloths lying there, but he does not go in. Why? Maybe he's just perplexed. Maybe he's got things racing through his head. Maybe he thinks there may be robbers still in there. I don't know. But he doesn't go in. But Peter, of course, he gets there following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. Peter sees the linen cloths lying there. John makes that point already because every matter will be established by two or three witnesses. Now you have two witnesses to establish the matter. And the linen cloths lying there seem to be an absolutely fundamental detail to the empty tomb narrative. And they also see the face cloth. Now, when a Jewish person was buried, the Egyptians, you know, they they have an embalmment process, very elaborate. Others would simply just burn the people. Jewish people would wrap the person in linen cloths with spices, but they would leave the head uncovered and a cloth would be placed over the head. So this all makes sense. And this cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, was not with the linen cloths, not just tossed aside, but was folded up in a place by itself. Why would anyone fold up the linen cloths and place it somewhere if your whole point is to go in and and steal the spices or the linen? So nothing really makes sense right now. Then the other disciple him who had reached the tomb first. Come on. Some of you competitive people have got to appreciate John at this point. Remember, like, you know when someone rubs in a game they've won and they make another mention of it? That's exactly what he must be doing here. He could just say the disciple whom Jesus loved. But no, the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed with the little bit of evidence we've been given so far without actually Christ presenting himself physically to John John has pieced this all together and he has believed and he is indeed the first person in history recorded to believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead And not everybody comes to that belief in the same way or at the same time. If you read the rest of the chapter, that's obvious. We know that because not only these verses, but other verses speak about how people came to finally believe. John is actually, it seems, the first person to believe without actually seeing Jesus. Everything is based upon the fact that Christ is bodily present. They see, they believe. To Mary, she goes Rabboni when he says Mary, to Thomas and to the disciples where he says, Peace be with you. Everything is based upon him physically being there. They see him, they believe. But John believes based upon the empty tomb and the linen there. And it's most remarkable. But the other disciples and others, including the women, did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead and because of their current state of really disbelief and confusion they went back to their homes and that is a uh, a way in which they want to be protected they're actually very fearful right now they don't want to be accused of of anything and they don't know what's happened to this body and only john seems to be the one who believes that christ has in fact been raised now Uh, What can we say about these matters? Well, I do want to make one point. And you see, this empty tomb, the anxiety that goes on amongst the disciples at this point, you wonder what it was like. Uh, And you wonder how they were thinking and acting my mother, whenever she comes over, she's here right now, not here, but she was here this morning in church, and uh, and she said it was a good sermon, by the way, um, whereas my dad, he is not as complimentary, uh, but... Uh, When she said it was a good sermon, I think she got a shout-out. That's why she liked it. And every time she comes over and my shoulders are like this and I do this, she's like Mark and comes behind me. She's like, why are you doing that? Are you stressed out? Why are you stressed out? Is it because of this? Is it because of this? I was like, how do I tell her nicely when you get asked a thousand questions? It can tend to stress you out. Um, But you know when you get stressed out, we do things we're not even conscious about. Others see it. And it it could be things we do with our hands, our shoulders, and all of that. And we have to learn to relax. And the resurrection is God's great relaxation to all of those who believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus has been raised from the dead. That is what is to relax you in this world. It is to take away your anxiety, it is to take away your fear. It's to take away the hopelessness that we sometimes feel. The resurrection is to give you the hope, the joy, the confidence that you need knowing that Christ has been raised from the dead. You see, nobody denied that there would be a future resurrection They all believed there'd be a future resurrection. The Pharisees believed in a future resurrection. What was so astounding about this is that Jesus has taken something entirely meant for the future and brought it into the now. The accomplished fact of His resurrection. And that accomplished fact is meant to be then a great aid to your Christian living. That you're not sitting here saying, well, our Savior died on a cross, but we have hope that one day He's going to come back. Your Christian faith is based upon the fact that He died on the cross, but on the third day He was raised from the dead, that there was an empty tomb, and that that empty tomb significance means that you actually, as a Christian, have nothing to actually fear anymore. Why does He say to His disciples when He walks into the room, finally, peace be with you? He's trying to take away their fear. And if you think about Mary Magdalene, for example, think about what she saw at the cross. Think about what she experienced in terms of love from Christ. Think about all of the darkness, all of the horror, all of the misery, all of the pain, all of the anger, all of the emotions that she was going through. And then think about how God and God alone is able to take something like that and flip it on its head so quickly. That instead of fear, instead of anger towards the Jewish authorities, instead of those horrible memories of the words that she would have heard that would have pierced her for the rest of her life when Christ cried out from the cross, instead of all of those things, she will soon be able to change all of those emotions to joy, to happiness, to confidence, to hope, because Christ has been raised from the dead. Mere Christianity. Mere Christianity not only begins with the resurrection, it ends with the resurrection. And your Christianity is no Christianity at all unless you also believe with John. He believed without seeing. And that is meant to be an encouragement to each and every one of you that you too can believe without seeing, and that you can truly believe by faith. And when you believe that He's been raised from the dead, you have to ask yourself this one question. How is my life different because that tomb is empty? How is my life different because that tomb is empty? And would my life be any different if He remained in that tomb? And those are questions you have to ask yourself. Because if Christ has in fact been raised from the dead, then your sins are forgiven. And there is eternal life. And it is freely offered to anyone who would put their faith in Him. Let's pray. O oh Lord, we thank You for our Savior. Savior. He will one day Descend upon the clouds in glory, in majesty, in honor, in power, in victory. Long ago He was crucified in weakness and He was raised again. And we pray that before that time comes when He returns, we will all be found to have already been raised ourselves because our faith does raise us to the heavenly places. And so that we will have nothing to fear But only the expectant hope and joy of a Savior who has conquered death, in whose name we pray. Amen.